Well, hello there. I am Nurse Mo, and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast, where I teach nursing concepts and share tips on how to thrive in school and at the bedside. So today I'm going to be talking you through what it's like to take ACLS, Advanced Cardiac Life Support, which I know can be a little bit nerve-wracking for a new student or a nurse who's going into something like critical care or emergency room nursing where you have to take this advanced certification. So we're going to talk about that and kind of put your ACLS fears to rest Before we do that, I want to take a very quick minute for a listener shout out. And this one goes out to an individual who goes by the initials SBC. And this person says, I decided to go back to nursing school at 54. Although I have great organizational skills, I had no idea how much outside learning I would need to obtain to survive school. I found Nurse Mo in the middle of my first semester. I used study sesh to drill electrolytes, and I'm currently watching videos from MedSurge Solution. I'm beyond grateful to have Straight A Nursing as a resource. So thank you, SBC, for taking time to submit that feedback and how you're using Straight A Nursing resources to help you thrive in school. And if you're listening to this and you're also an older, air quotes, older student like this individual, you can do it. So many students do. Okay. All righty, ready to dive into today's topic. So ACLS, like I said, it can be a little bit intimidating, especially as a new nurse. Sometimes students will take it or they're about to graduate because maybe you're in a tight job market and you're just really trying to put yourself at the top of the pack by showing your dedication. I remember when I took my very first ACLS class, I was a new grad, and I was applying to things like ICUs and ERs, and I thought, well, you know, it probably can't hurt that I have this extra certification. So I was totally in your shoes. What I will promise you is that you will not be the only newbie in the room, okay? Because the way ACLS works is it's a two-day class, and everybody who's certing for the first time goes to class both days. So your first day when you go, it's people taking ACLS for the first time, or maybe they let their ACLS certification lapse, and now they have to take the whole certification course. But for the most part, it's going to be people taking it for the very first time. So you won't be the only new person in the room, and you won't be the most clueless person in the room either, especially after listening to this episode. So who's going to be in your class with you? So Like I said, the two-day class, first day is everybody who is taking it for the first time or reserting after letting it lapse. And then on the second day, it's going to be all the people who are recertifying who didn't let it lapse. So you have to take it every two years. All the people recertifying. So you'll have more experienced people on your second day, but that's okay because by the time you get to your second day, you've got a lay of the land. You'll learn a lot in that very first day. So it's going to be new grads, it's going to be new paramedics, it's going to be even uh, physicians, like residents usually will take ACLS as part of their residence training. It'll be nurses who maybe have been nurses for a while, but now they're transitioning to ICU or moving into a job in the ER or something like that. And then again, people who let their certification lapse or maybe they left ICU to go do something else for a while, now they're coming back into a higher level of 
care and they need to take it again. So a wide range of individuals. Now, when you renew your ACLS certification, two years from now, when you go back to get that renewal, you'll just go to the second day of class, okay? And that second day of class, like I said, that's gonna be a whole bunch of people, lots of nurses, lots of paramedics. It's for the most part what I see when I take ACLS. Now, my advice to you is if you're going into this for the very first time, is take ACLS with a friend. It makes it a lot less stressful and definitely a bit more fun. So let's talk a little bit about how the class is structured and what you can expect. Then we'll dive into how to prepare. So that first day that you're going to the class as a brand new ACLS certification person is going to be all lecture for the most part, lecture and some skills lab or skills practice. So if you're lucky with this, you'll get a really great teacher who goes beyond just playing those American Heart Association videos, which are very informative, but sometimes maybe not that exciting, but they have to show you certain ones definitely. And then others may be more up to the instructor's discretion. They may have a different way of teaching the material. And that's definitely what I've encountered. Whenever I take ACLS, I always get the same teacher. I think I have basically gotten the same teacher 90% of the time. And I love the way he teaches the algorithms. He doesn't make us watch every single AHA video for the algorithms because he has a different and, in my opinion, more streamlined and easier to remember way to teach. So that's really great. So a really good teacher will make sure that they're doing more than pushing play on a video player. They're actually teaching you the material. So the lecture that you you sit through for that first day is going to cover all the algorithms, which is basically here's the steps that you take in this situation. Here's the steps you take when the patient has bradycardia. Here's the steps you take when the patient has asystole and no pulse, etc. They're all these different algorithms so that when you're in a code, you're using evidence-based best practice to give your patient the best possible chance of a good outcome. So I mentioned bradycardia. I mentioned asystole, cardiac arrest. You'll also go through respiratory arrest. You'll go through acute coronary syndrome and even stroke. And of course, all the cardiac dysrhythmias, such as V-fib, pulseless VTAC, PEA. I mentioned bradycardia. You'll also talk about tachycardias, et cetera. You'll get some practice identifying the rhythms and a review of the medications used, such as epinephrine, atropine, and amiodarone. So for the rhythms, you need to be able to quickly recognize bradycardia, tachycardia, supraventricular tachycardia or SVT, atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter, heart blocks, VTAC, both monomorphic and polymorphic, V-fib, agonal rhythms, and asystole. I believe those are the key rhythms that you need to be able to recognize. And I think the blocks are probably the ones that give people the most trouble. When you're looking at a block, though, Think about what are we really looking at here? We're most likely looking at a bradycardia, right? But you will need to know the different blocks for your written exam. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. So your first day may also have some skills stations where you get to 
practice putting in an oral pharyngeal airway. You get to practice doing your compressions, practice putting the pads on the patient, all those different types of things. Practice using the BVM and doing that rescue breathing, okay? And then the second day is really fun too because now there's a lot more people in your class. And like I said, you'll have experienced nurses and you'll probably have a lot of paramedics, like firefighter paramedics, ambulance company paramedics. And they always have like really good in the field examples to share. So I always find their stories and experience really beneficial. They run codes all the time. And I love when I have a lot of paramedics in the class. So as long as you renew your cert, Before that two years is up, you'll be coming back just for the second day. And the second day involves a key summary of everything you learned on the first day because the people that are coming for just the second day still get a little bit of a refresher and the instructor will go over any updates to the American Heart Association guidelines. Like, for example, I just reserted in ACLS this past week. And one of the big changes was the dose for atropine. It used to be 0.5 milligrams. Now it's one milligram. So they go over key changes for things like that. And then we do a summary and we talk about different scenarios. Now, there are certain things that you must pass in order to get your certification. So you've sat through lecture, you've done some hands-on practice. There will be a mega code which I know sounds really scary, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. And as I mentioned a moment ago, a written exam. Now, depending on how the school where you're taking your ACLS is structured, you may need to, on that first day, prove competency in putting pads on a patient, in turning on the defibrillator, in setting up for synchronized cardioversion. With COVID and the big changes that occurred in certification education at that time where we didn't do any of that stuff because they didn't want anybody touching anything. So it was just kind of a huge shift. Now they're switching back to doing more hands-on stuff, but they're leaving it more at the discretion of the instructor and what they're comfortable with and the best way, basically, that the instructor feels to teach the information. So definitely there will be some kind of a mega code and there will definitely be that written exam. So the mega code, like I said, maybe it's the name mega code that freaks people out, but it's really not that bad. So the instructors just know that they're there to help you and the other people in there are not there to judge you. And you should definitely not feel like an idiot because We're all in this to learn, right? We're all in this as a team. So like I mentioned a moment ago, the mega code situation was probably the one thing that changed the most with the COVID-19 kind of social distancing and infection prevention measures. So prior to that happening, the mega code would take place with a group of five or six individuals. You'd break out into small groups and go into a little breakout room, like a little simulation lab, right, with your your team and with the instructor and the mannequin and the monitor, the whole simulation experience. And each individual would take a turn as the code leader to call out, do this next, do this next, do this next, to show that you know the algorithms. 
Okay. So even though that was a little bit scary and the place where I take my ACLS, I love it. They pride themselves on being like a no stress situation where the emphasis is on teaching, not making you feel horrible about yourself. So you could take notes into the mega code because in real life, you've got a little cheat sheet there with the AHA algorithms on it. So why not use your resources? So I always would take my little notes in there and I always felt pretty good in the mega code situation. Now, with COVID, that changed a lot, and it became more of a group discussion, which is actually, well, definitely way less scary and actually really interesting. So we're all in the room, and and even with that, I would say my class still wasn't very big. I think maybe there were 12 people in my class. They definitely are keeping the class sizes down because of social distancing guidelines, But it's more of a group discussion. So it's not like they say, okay, Mo, you're the group leader. What do you do? It's more like, let's talk about it. Let's just shout out the answer when when we get to this part of the algorithm. So it was way less stressful and more interactive and a more dynamic experience. And my instructor talked about how the AHA is you know, allowing people to go back into the tiny rooms and do their mega codes as they used to do and share a mannequin and do all these things. But he said, really, I have found that people learn better in this kind of way. There's a lot less stress. There's more discussion. And according to him, he found it more beneficial. It will be different based on where you're taking your ACLS class. So just know you could be in a mega code as the team leader calling out the things to do and assigning people roles just like you'll watch in those American Heart Association videos, or it might be more of a group discussion. All right, so that's the mega code. I don't want you to be afraid of it. It's actually really interesting to see how a well-run code can work because then when you're in the hospital setting and it might feel a little bit chaotic, you can try to bring some of that calm and order back into it. Okay, so In that ACLS mega code situation, you've got a mannequin that if you're using it, you'll be doing compressions, you'll be getting the BVM, providing the respirations, all of those things with the hands on. And then the mannequin will also have different heart rhythms. So we call it a mega code because they'll give you a scenario. They'll say like, okay, you walk in the room and you find the patient on the floor and he has agonal breaths. And then you have to say, okay, put him on the monitor. And he's like, okay, you put him on the monitor and here's what you see. And then he pops a rhythm up on the screen. And maybe in that rhythm, it's, you know, asystole. So then you have to say, okay, start compressions, et cetera, et cetera. And you basically go through the algorithms and he'll say, okay, it's been two minutes of compressions. You've checked for a shockable rhythm. You don't have a shockable rhythm. What do you do now? And then you say, continue compressions, get an IV, etc. And then at some point, the rhythm will change, right? You'll do some kind of intervention. Maybe you do compressions for another round. And when you check for a pulse, you feel a pulse, but it's really slow. So now you're in a bradycardia algorithm. So you go through the bradycardia algorithm and you give some atropine or you start pacing and maybe something else happens and now the patient's in SVT and then you go through the tachycardia algorithm and then you go to cardiovert but you forget to push the sync button so you actually defibrillated the patient so now they're in VFib so now you go through the VFib algorithm. So that's why it's called a mega code not because it's big and scary and meant to intimidate you but because it goes through a bunch of different different algorithms, all in that same patient scenario. 
And then you have your written exam. It is a 50-question exam, and it's all multiple choice. And I've taken it many, many times, so I feel like I, until they changed the guidelines, I felt like I had the questions and answers all memorized, but they switched it up. I did notice this time. I would not say it's a terribly, terribly difficult exam. As long as you pay attention in your lecture, you're going to do fine on the exam. But you you probably should study the book a little bit before you take ACLS for the very first time so that when you go to class, you're not hearing this stuff for the very, very first time. Adult learning. Learners, we need to hear it more than once for it to really stick. I think it's because our brains are already so busy and so full all the time. So expect the exam to take up to an hour and don't panic if other people are getting done really fast. And that's because that person has probably reserted ACLS 10 times and they know their algorithms and they know ACLS really well. So if somebody gets up after 10 or 15 minutes and they're done with the test and you're still on question 20, don't panic, okay? You take your time, you go through, you read every word of the question, you read all the answers just like you would in class, okay? Now, how do you prepare for ACLS. So you're definitely going to want to get the book, okay, so that you're getting the most recent updated information. And usually the place where you sign up to take your ACLS will offer to sell you the book. So just get the book, okay? It's from the American Heart Association. And then read the book. I'm not saying read every word. That would take quite a while. But read through the algorithms. Read through the pharmacology. Kind of glance through it. If you find something that interests you, read that, okay? It's actually a pretty well-done book. I find it to be pretty succinct and full of a lot of really good information. And then, as I mentioned before, take the class with a friend and get together beforehand to review the algorithms and just run mock codes with each other. It's really a great way to practice memorizing the steps to take in all those different ACLS algorithms. And as you're going through the algorithms, it can feel overwhelming. There's a lot of steps, but if you just think, okay, the heart's gonna be doing four things, basically. It's gonna be going too slow. It's gonna be going too fast. It's not gonna be going at all, or it's gonna be freaking out, right? Like in VFib. So if you can keep kind of that simplicity in your head, it'll make it, so you don't feel quite as overwhelmed as you're studying and learning the algorithms. So let's just talk very briefly and in a very general way what you'll be doing in these algorithms. So what if the heart is too slow, right? So if the heart is too slow, so we're looking at bradycardia here, you're looking for symptomatic. Is the patient symptomatic or not? So a patient could have a heart rate of 48 and have zero symptoms. So the first thing I'm, I'm gonna ask this patient is, are you an athlete? Do you run? Do you cycle long distance? Like, are you some kind of athlete? And if they say yes, and they're alert, they're oriented, they are not complaining of any chest pain, they're not diaphoretic, their skin signs look good, their blood pressure is fine, then that would be an asymptomatic bradycardia. 
Okay. But if my patient has a heart rate of 48 and I say, are you by any chance an athlete? And they say, no, unless you count, you know, the tour de couch, then no, I'm not an athlete. I'm not going to just let it go that their heart rate is 48. I want to figure out why is your heart rate 48? Did you just start a new medication? Maybe they just started on a beta blocker and their dose might be a little hefty, right? Something like that. We're going to look at possible causes. So the patient may not be symptomatic now, but they could be. So what are we looking at when we're looking at is the patient symptomatic or not? We're looking at five key things. If they are altered, so altered level of consciousness, hypotensive, if they're complaining of chest pain, have shortness of breath, or poor skin signs, we would consider any of those being an indicator that the patient has a symptomatic bradycardia. And then another thing that you have to take into account is how symptomatic are they? And in ACLS, we say medicine or Edison. So you're going to give meds, so pharmacology, or Edison electricity, right? We're going to give drugs, or we're going to shock them in some kind of way. So if your patient has a bradycardia that needs to be addressed, and they're not terribly, terribly symptomatic, you can give atropine. That's the medication in ACLS for bradycardia. And the dose is one milligram. It used to be 0.5, but now that dose is one milligram atropine every three to five minutes to a max dose of three milligrams. Now, other medications that could be used would be a dopamine drip or an epi drip. But for the most part, you're talking about those IV push meds when you're doing your ACLS, and that's atropine one milligram. But let's say your patient is complaining of chest pain. They're not very rousable. Their blood pressure is 74 over 14. Well, that would be a crazy blood pressure, 74 over 32 or something really bad. Now they're real symptomatic, right? They're what we call big sick. So we're not going to waste time with the atropine. We're going right to electricity. And the electricity treatment for bradycardia is transcutaneous pacing at a rate of 60 to 100 beats per minute. A lot of times your instructor will state in their experience as a paramedic of a million years that they start at 80, right? Like that's where they start. So that's kind of the recommended range. 60 to 100 beats per minute with 80 being right there in the middle. You also wanna consider sedation if you can because it's pretty uncomfortable to have a transcutaneous pacer. So that's bradycardia. And then for tachycardia, you're looking at a few different things. First of all, is it narrow or is it a wide complex tachycardia? So you can have a narrow tachycardia and you could just have sinus tachycardia. That's not going to be an ACLS situation. Sinus tachycardia, heart rate of 120 with a patient who's got pain, fever, anxiety, et cetera. There's always going to be some easy, easy-ish, right, underlying cause. That's not going to be ACLS. We're talking about supraventricular tachycardia, which is going to be over a rate of 150. And it's going to be quite it's going to be quite fast, very narrow, and you're not seeing P waves with that. So that's what's called that narrow complex tachycardia. And when we're looking at this, we're also looking at are they stable or unstable? Are we going medicine or are we going Edison? Are we giving meds or are we going to electricity? One extra thing though that you will consider in your stable tachycardia patient is to try a vagal 
maneuver. So you've got a patient in SVT. They're not complaining of chest pain. They're not complaining of shortness of breath, that their heart is going, you know, 178 beats per minute. You can try a vagal maneuver, which works sometimes, not terribly often, but hey, it's a very non-invasive thing to try. So start with a vagal maneuver, which would be asking the patient to bear down, or you can give them a syringe and and try to see if they can blow that plunger out of the syringe. That's going to cause them to vagal, and that can also get someone out of SVT. But let's say that that vagal maneuver doesn't work. So for your more stable patient, you go with medicine, and the medicine for SVT, or supraventricular tachycardia, is adenosine. And the first dose is 6 milligrams, and the second dose is 12 milligrams. And you're going to give that adenosine fast. That is the key. It has a very, very short half-life. So you have to do it rapid IV push with a rapid IV push flush of normal saline. You want it to get into the system as quickly as possible because it really doesn't last that long. So the thing to know about adenosine is that it's going to cause a systole, basically a systole. Sometimes they'll say a very slow bradycardia, but essentially it's going to be a systole for about seven seconds. And then the SA node takes over and the patient comes back into a normal sinus rhythm or in a lot of cases, a sinus bradycardia, but they're out of SVT. But what if you have a patient with SVT who is complaining of chest pain, who is altered, who is short of breath? We're not going to waste time doing a vagal maneuver on that person, and we may not even waste time doing adenosine. We're going to go to the electricity. Remember, medicine or Edison, and the electricity for SVT is synchronized cardioversion. Okay, so when we say synchronized cardioversion, that monitor is going to sync to the patient's rhythm so that it knows exactly when the device should deliver the shock. If we deliver the shock at the wrong time, if we don't sync it, we're basically defibrillating the patient. We can send them into ventricular fibrillation if we do that. So you always want to make sure when you're doing synchronized cardioversion that you have synced the monitor. So you sync it, you push the button, and then it's not going to shock immediately. It's going to shock, you know, a moment later when the time is right. Okay, so that is synchronized cardioversion. Now, what if your patient is in a wide complex tachycardia? ventricular tachycardia with a pulse, okay? So the patient could be stable, but they're probably not going to stay stable for a very, very long time. The ACLS, American Heart Association guidelines, are basically to seek expert consultation. And many times the medication used will be amiodarone, okay? But what if the patient is unstable? They've got that wide complex tachycardia and they're not looking so good. Their skin signs are bad. They're starting to gasp for air. Their hands on their chest, like they're not doing so great. This could deteriorate very, very quickly. So we're going right to electricity and it's also going to be a synchronized cardio version, okay? So that's your tachycardia algorithm, basically, in a nutshell. I mean, there's more details that you'll learn in your class, but in a nutshell, that's it. And then we have asystole and PEA, which is pulseless electrical activity. 
What are we going to do for that? We're basically just doing compressions and giving epinephrine. Compressions, epinephrine, compressions, epinephrine. Epinephrine is given one milligram every three to five minutes. When you're not given epi, you're doing compressions. That's it. You're also looking at possible causes. That's a key thing that the American Heart Association wants the people doing when they're in a code, when you're leading a code or working on a code. So those are the H's and T's. You may have heard that before. So the H's are hypoxia. If the patient's hypoxic and that's causing the cardiac arrest, giving oxygen is going to help, right? So when you look at the H's and T's, you can also, in some cases, address the underlying cause right there. Another one is hypothermia, warming up the patient, hypokalemia or hyperkalemia, hypovolemia, maybe the patient needs some fluids, and then H positive or hydrogen ions, which would be an acidotic state. So those are the H's. The T's are toxins. Did the patient take a whole bunch of fentanyl? Maybe they need some Narcan. Do they have cardiac tamponade? That's another one. Tension pneumothorax or a thrombosis, either a pulmonary embolism or a myocardial infarction. So those are the H's and T's to be considering for your patient in asystole or PEA. And then we have V-fib and pulseless V-tac. So really important here to know that in V-fib, the heart's not pumping, it's just quivering, okay? So even though you see some electrical activity on the monitor, it's very disorganized, the heart's not doing anything meaningful. And then your monitor in pulseless V-tac will look like V-tac, but there's no accompanying pulse with that. So they're both basically pulseless rhythms, but the difference between V-fib and pulseless V-tac versus asystole or PEA is that we can use electricity on V-fib and pulseless V-tac. So with your V-fib, with your pulseless V-tac, what we're going to do, and, and they typically talk about V-fib more in your ACLS class. So getting CPR started immediately while you're waiting for that monitor and that defibrillator to get there, okay? You're not going to let anything delay getting on that chest. But as soon as that monitor gets there, you're getting the pads on the patient, you're getting that defibrillator, all those pads put on the patient, and you're shocking as soon as the device states that you have a shockable rhythm, okay? So you'll learn a lot in your CPR component of ACLS that you don't want to pause compressions at any time, unless it's absolutely necessary. So one of the times is when you're doing a pulse check, but are we pausing compressions while the defibrillator is charging? No, we're gonna keep the compressions going. We'll wait until the code leader calls for a clear to clear the patient. Then we stop compressions, the shock is delivered. And then what do you think we do? We get right back on the chest, right back into CPR. So we do this round like CPR, defibrillation, CPR, defibrillation, and then we're going to start giving medications, right? We're going to get IV in there. And the medications that we use in V-fib and pulseless VTAC are epinephrine. So we're using epinephrine every three to five minutes. And then on that second round, when we could come back with a medication, it won't be time for epinephrine yet. So we can consider amiodarone. So in V-fib, just know that epinephrine is your key drug, but you can use amiodarone twice. One dose is 300 milligrams. 
When you do it again, it's 150 milligrams. But other than that, once your amiodarones are done, it's epi, shock, CPR. That's it. Okay. Whew. We have been through a lot. And now I just want to go through kind of just some random things to know about your ACLS that might help you in your mega code or on that written exam. Okay. One of the things that your instructor will teach you about is entitled CO2 monitoring, which is a great way to determine the effectiveness of chest compression. So entitled CO2 in a normal, healthy person who is not undergoing CPR is 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury. Now, with somebody going through CPR, they're not going to have an end tidal CO2 that high, but we're aiming for a range between 15 and 25 millimeters of mercury for the end tidal CO2. And if it falls below 15, then you know chest compressions are not fast enough or not deep enough, and the quality of the compressions needs to be improved. Or maybe the person doing compressions isn't allowing for full recoil, okay? So that is a great way to determine the quality of the compressions. And then if the patient has a sudden drastic increase in end tidal CO2, this typically means that circulation has returned. They've had return of spontaneous circulation. So it'll be hovering around 17 with your quality CPR and, and shoot up to 50. Okay, that person has return of spontaneous circulation. So definitely, I think that's going to be on your exam. It's definitely going to come up in your mega code situation. As far as interruptions in CPR, they really should only occur when you're switching compressors, when your patient is being very quickly intubated, and when you do a pulse check. And the goal with minimizing compressions is to keep that under 10 seconds. So five to 10 seconds for your pulse check, okay, as quickly as you can and for everything else. Do you stop compressions to put the pads on? No, you keep the compressions going. The person can work around your hands as much as they can if they have to turn the patient, you're putting the pads on the back. Of course, you'll stop for that very quick second, but otherwise you're on that chest. So quality CPR, quality compressions are absolutely important. On an adult, we're compressing to a depth of at least two inches. So about two inches depth at a rate of 100 to 120 beats per minute allowing for full chest recoil, meaning we're waiting for the chest to come all the way back up to its original position before we push down again. So full chest recoil. If your patient is in your mega code and does not have a route for medication administration, something to know is that you're going to assign someone on your team to obtain access, and that access can be IV access or IO access, intraosseous access, meaning we go right into the bone. We talked about the H's and T's. If you're in a mega code situation, you definitely want to bring that up. Like, let's look at our H's and T's. What are some possible causes for this patient's cardiac arrest? Again, those were hypoxia, hypothermia, hypo or hyperkalemia, hypovolemia, and then hydrogen ions or acidosis. And then for the T's, it was toxins, which is going to be like overdoses or, you know, a toxic substance, cardiac tamponade, 
hypertension, pneumothorax, and then a thrombosis, which is a pulmonary embolism or a coronary thrombosis. Another key concept or thing to know is that you should avoid excessive ventilation for your patient. If the patient has a pulse and you're administering rescue breathing, you're doing that at a rate of one breath every five to six seconds. You're also doing that at a rate of about every six seconds for your patient who has an advanced airway in place. So if you have a patient with an advanced airway, meaning an endotracheal tube, that person on that bag valve mask in your megacode is going to be delivering a breath about every six seconds, okay? Excessive ventilation is going to cause an increase in intrathoracic pressure, which causes decreased venous return. And what do you think that does to cardiac output? It decreases cardiac output. All right, nitrates. This will definitely come up in your class. Nitrates are used very cautiously or not at all in a patient with a right-sided infarct as this will tank the patient's blood pressure. It will reduce preload and potentially cause a worse outcome for your patient. So know that that could come up in your discussion. It's also avoided in patients who are hypotensive, patients who are markedly bradycardic or markedly tachycardic, and in patients who have recently taken a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, such as Viagra or Sildenafil. And it's not just the gentlemen who take Viagra. People take phosphodiesterase inhibitors for pulmonary hypertension. So you have to ask everyone if they've taken a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. Well, if the patient's not responsive, you're asking any bystanders and anyone that might know family members, etc. Okay, for medication administration, know that the IV and IO routes are preferred. You may see some discussion in your book about the endotracheal tube being a route of administration. IV and IO, 100% preferred. We talked about amiodarone. We talked about adenosine. You'll definitely need to know your key medications. They will come up on your exam. Speaking of medications on your exam, atropine is used for that bradycardia. We talked about that earlier. It's not going to be effective in second-degree type 2 or third-degree heart block, even though those are probably bradycardic. Your patient's going to get atropine for that. It's not going to help. It's not going to do anything. A patient with a higher degree block, they're going to get pacing, okay? Another very key drug is that epinephrine that we talked about. Epinephrine is used in V-fib, pulseless VTAC, in asystole, and PEA. You have to know the concentration of the drug, and that's a 1 in 10,000 concentration. And again, the dose is 1 milligrams every three to five minutes. Now, lidocaine may be mentioned in your class. It is sometimes used instead of amiodarone in V-fib and pulseless VTAC, so you may see that. And it may also be used in stable monomorphic or polymorphic VTAC, okay? So lidocaine may come up. And then the other drug and the other thing to know about is polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, which is torsades de Poince. And this can be pulseless or the patient can have a pulse with that. And this is a type of ventricular tachycardia 
where you won't see a uniform shape to the the waves, the QRSs, I guess is what they are. They're going to some be small, some be bigger. And this is because of a low magnesium level that this strange pattern shows. So the treatment, one of the key things to do for Tursades de Pointe is to give magnesium. Now, if your patient's pulseless with that, you're going to also be defibrillating them, of course. So there you have it. There's kind of your brief overview of what ACLS class is like. I hope that this helps you feel a little better about taking it for the very first time. You won't be as scared. You'll go in there with a eagerness to learn because it really is really interesting to learn all the algorithms, the science behind them, and to talk with people that run codes regularly what their experiences have been, and get some practice so that if a code happens on your watch, you know what to do. So I hope to see you back here next week. Same time, same place. If you're subscribed to the show or following the show through your favorite podcast app, then the episodes show up for you magically every Thursday. So if you haven't taken the time to do that yet, I would love if you did that. I would also love if you would also rate and review the show. It really just makes my day to see how the podcast is helping you. And maybe I'll read your review and your feedback as a future listener shout out. So I'll see you back here next week. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.